are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2, which include the following three topics. The firstborn of all creation. Second, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And third, Mary, mother of Christ, mother of the church. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here's Dr. George speaking about the firstborn of all creation. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Paul's letter to the Colossians is written, as were his other captivity epistles, during his Roman imprisonment between 61 and 63 AD. This letter is to the beloved people in Colossae, whom St. Paul considers, in a sense, his own children. He perceives himself to be the spiritual father of the Colossians. However, as he himself says, it is Epaphras from whom they first heard the gospel message. He certainly implies at the beginning of chapter 2 in, verse, in verses 1 and 2 that, that the Colossians have never actually seen him face to face. Now, we shouldn't find this so surprising in light of the fact that Paul well knew Epaphras who was a co-worker, a trustworthy companion of his in the vineyard of the Lord. Paul refers to this several times in his letters. Epaphras is the same man, it has long been understood in tradition, as the man Epaphroditus, who had gone to Paul to be with him in Rome, and through whom Paul sent his letter to the Philippians. Epaphras was part of the church in Philippi at that time. However, in this letter we find out that Epaphras is originally a native of Colossae, and Paul would have gotten to know him. He would have become a disciple of Paul during Paul's time in Ephesus, most probably, which would be during his second missionary journey. We remember what St. Luke says in Acts of the Apostles, how during that time, the years that St. Paul was in Ephesus, he made many disciples, and in making those disciples, he sent them out to the outlying regions of Ephesus in Asia Minor so that the gospel could be proclaimed. And St. Luke says that in those years, everyone in that part of Asia Minor was able to hear the gospel, heard the word of God. So Epaphras would have become a disciple, 
so trustworthy that he himself could be sent out. Since he is a native of Colossae, of course, having received the word of God, he would immediately have taken it back to his own people. Now, when he goes to Paul in Rome, as we already spoke in the last lesson, he had very good news to bring to Paul concerning the church in Philippi. They had received the word and had remained faithful to the word, and for this reason, Paul was filled with joy. But Epaphras would also have known about, have been concerned about, all of the people of God in Asia Minor, because that's where he first worked, that's where he lived. And just as Paul, in spite of all the places he journeyed, wherever he lived, all the people he knew, all the Christians were always in his heart. He was always concerned about them. He wanted to know how they were faring and if they were remaining faithful to the word. Epaphras would have heard about what was going on with some of the churches in Asia Minor. And it is this, that the false teachers, there were false teachers, not only the Judaizers, but even we have a hint of already how certain Christians in those early days of the church began to misunderstand the word that had been preached to them, the doctrines of our salvation, and had started to spread them among the other Christians throughout the world. And so Epaphras would have expressed this concern to Paul, and he now in turn writes a letter to the Colossians, a letter which he will send through the hands of Tychicus, we'll discover at the end of this letter. And he reminds them of how grateful he is to God for the word they embraced through Epaphras in the beginning, but he immediately goes on to say that he is very concerned because he is hearing that they are starting to flag in their faith that the truths that they first embraced, that they are being convinced or persuaded by others that Christ is not exactly the Christ that was first taught them. For this reason, St. Paul's letter to the Colossians is very theological. The purpose in writing this letter is to set the record straight again regarding the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. And so, we find at the very beginning of this letter another hymn, one of the great hymns of the captivity epistles, this one in Colossians, speaking about the word incarnate. We've already discussed the one in Ephesians and the one in Philippians. Now we have one which in many ways, in tone and even in language, is different from the other hymns, and yet all three speak about exactly one and the same mystery. In this one, Paul begins by saying, by reiterating that Jesus Christ is the image of the unseen God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is very important as he goes on to say, it is in him and through him that all things in heaven and on earth have come into existence. In many places in scripture, God makes clear to us 
that it is through Christ all things have been created, in him and through him and also for him. Not only the invisible or the heavenly or spiritual things, that might be easier for us to understand because we know God is himself invisible, God is pure spirit, but all things visible as well, all things on earth, everything visible and everything invisible. He exists before all things. Christ is the firstborn of all creation, something God has been revealing from the beginning of salvation history. Now first, Christ is, as God himself reveals, the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation, as St. Paul will say in his letter to the Hebrews, the exact representation of the Father's being. He is the very stamp of his nature. In the person of Christ, we see the invisible God. This is amazing, so amazing, that down through the ages, people, even Christians who have been educated in the truths of our faith, begin to stumble in regard to this because it seems almost too much for us to actually believe, which is why God explicitly divinely reveals it to us. To be the firstborn, we can understand in light of the mystery of the redemption wrought by Christ. We know that we had, through sin, fallen from God, fallen from grace, and in that regard, all of humanity was dead. And God wanting us to live a life in communion with him essentially had to recreate or to give us new birth again, which is the purpose of the Incarnation. When Jesus passes through death and rises to new life, as Scripture says, he rises to new life with us, our humanity, in tow, united to himself, assumed to himself. And in this way, we are recreated. It is a mystery we enter in baptism, so that now we too can be born anew in God, in the person of Christ. So the mystery we understand through the order of redemption. One says, what about all the people who lived before the time of Christ? In Christ, in the person of the Son who is God, who is Lord of history, Lord of past, present, and future, in him, in the mystery of his person, all things are recapitulated in Christ, are brought together and made new in the person of Christ. So that in Christ, and it is only in Christ, that Abraham can finally enter heaven. Christ is the only door to heaven. As the church fathers say, the gates of heaven had been closed, but they had to open when the flesh of Christ rose up to heaven 
the doors of the gates of heaven had to break open for Christ in the flesh. But there is another aspect to this mystery about firstborn, which God had been speaking of from the very beginning. God had been saying all along that he was preparing a body for himself. Now this body, he begins to prepare already in the person of Adam. Everything God does is in preparation for the sending of his son in the fullness of time. When God becomes man, it's not as if he looks at man and says, well, I've promised that I myself would come. What am I to do? What humanity, what nature am I to take? As if the nature of man is so different from God. God himself, knowing himself, created man, fashioned man in a nature befitting God, reflecting God. This is why God is so careful from the very beginning to say to man that man is created in the image of God. God does not come in the image of man. Man is created in the image of God. So God fashions man with his own hands. The church fathers in speaking of this, God speaks of his hands in scripture. Again, these are images to help us to make intelligible to us the mystery of God. And so when God speaks of his hands, and he speaks specifically of his right hand, and we know now in divine revelation who the right hand of God is. The right hand is the Son. But the church fathers speak of how God creates through the Son and through the Holy Spirit, the hands of God. When God fashions man with his own hands, he impresses his own form upon the very flesh he fashions. And he does so in such a way that even what is visible might be able to bear the divine form. Since this is so, we begin to see the profundity of our humanity, of our human nature, not only in our soul, which is invisible, but in our body, which is visible. Our human bodies are in the image of God. There is such mystery in the body of man, mysteries we do not yet understand. There is so much about the human body we do not understand yet. We think we understand a great deal, but it is very little, comparatively speaking. Every detail about the human nature of man is reflective of the mystery of God, something that we will not fully see or understand until the resurrection of the body. Because we have been recreated, because we now have the seed of immortality in us, not only in our soul, but it includes the life of the body, we will see the fulfillment of that at the resurrection to new life. And we will then see, looking at each other, seeing ourselves, we will see Christ in a most magnificent way. 
because we have been created, we have been fashioned, soul and body, in His image. In this way, we must say, He is, in every way, the firstborn of all creation. Because even before God created Adam, even before God created anything, God had in his mind the one thought, so to speak, the one word, which is his son. So that when God creates, he creates through and in that son. So, strictly speaking, Adam is not the firstborn. Christ is. Yes, Adam is the firstborn or created in time in salvation history. And Christ, God becomes the Word incarnate only in the fullness of time. God does this. He enters into time at a chosen point. In spite of this, God is outside of time. He is the eternal now. And when God does something, whatever it is, he does it with a view to its fulfillment. So that in a certain kind of way, the very first, in this case, Adam, who is created, is created in the image of one who already exists. One who is born, not yet in time, but begotten, begotten from all eternity as Son of the Father. Jesus Christ is, therefore, the firstborn in every way. When St. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined, to share in the image of his Son, so that the Son might be the firstborn of many. He's speaking of this very mystery. Who does God foreknow? He foreknows all he has created. God knew all of us, from Adam to the present day to the end of time. God has always known us. We have been in the mind of God, and not only in his mind, in his love, which is why we say he creates us out of love, because he loves us. He loves us into existence. For knowing us, he also predestined us. This is what St. Paul means, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to share in the image of his Son. Who then are the predestined? Everyone. Everyone God creates, he predestines to share in this image in the most eminent way possible in virtue of the resurrection. And in this way, Jesus Christ, the Son, is the firstborn of many brothers. The Church, in speaking of this, the work of creation, the order of creation, and the work of redemption or the order of redemption, reminds us then that the work of creation culminates in the greater work of redemption. It brings to completion, to fulfillment, to perfection, man created in God's image. So that the first creation, 
finds its meaning and summit in the new creation in Christ, the splendor of which surpasses the first creation. In a certain sense, the very bodies we now see, our humanity, still has the appearance of that first creation, and yet in faith, we know that we have already been recreated in virtue of that new creation in Christ, which is why we await the glorified body that will be ours at the end of time. In that sense, we have been created in God's image and recreated in the image of the glorified Son. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering The Fullness of Deity Dwells in Bodily Form. And now, back to Dr. George. In all the particulars that St. Paul goes on to say in this letter, he is actually getting around to the subject again in chapter 2 of the truth about the person of Christ who is true God and true man. What he says in verse 9 of chapter 2 is critical. It is so important to our understanding the theology of which he speaks in the hymn. What he says is that in him, in Christ, in bodily form, lives the divinity in its fullness. The whole fullness of deity, the Godhead, dwells in bodily form in the person of Christ. We have to understand that Christ, being one person, God and man, possesses two natures. He is both divine and human. And he possesses these natures fully the entire time he is on earth. Already in the first century, there were those teachers who misunderstood the doctrines of our faith and who began to present a diminished or distorted view or understanding of the person of Christ. All of the heresies over the 2,000-year history of the Church, we could probably summarize as heresies directly touching upon or ultimately affecting the truth about the person of Christ, true God and true man. Either they are heresies or errors which deny, distort, or dilute the divinity of Christ, or they are errors which deny, distort, or dilute the humanity of Christ. And the problem that St. Paul is addressing in this letter is one that began to already be stirred up and which would come to its fullness by the early second century, and it was the heresy of Gnostic Docetism, Greek words, which speak of 
which refer to a heresy, a false knowledge about God, which said that his humanity was simply perceived or apparent, that when God became man and walked the earth, he appeared human. The Greek word docetism means to appear or look like, that he only appeared or looked human, but that he was not actually so. They went so far as to say that although he appeared to undergo suffering and death, he didn't actually really suffer and die because God could not do this. And yet in the mystery of God, he has revealed exactly this. So we first of all have to understand the two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Christ. Natures which are not divided, they are not confused or mingled, they are the two natures, holy and truly, in the person. We say, therefore, when we profess the Creed, we use that word consubstantial, which is so important to the Nicene Creed. It means with or of one nature, one substance. Jesus Christ is consubstantial with the Father as to his divinity, and he is consubstantial with us as to our humanity, like us in all things except sin. He is begotten. He is not created by God. He is not a son who ends up being adopted by God. These are all heresies that would spring up over the years. He is begotten from the Father before all ages, from all eternity. He is the only begotten Son. But in these last days for us and for our salvation, he is born as to his humanity of the Virgin Mary. So as we say in the Roman liturgy, what he was, he remained. And what he was not, he assumed. He assumed our humanity so that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God without ceasing to be our God and Lord, the one who becomes a man and our brother. It's also important that when he rose from the dead, he rose in his humanity, not merely in his divinity. It is exceedingly important that the humanity of Christ is in heaven. That is our hope for the resurrection of our own body, that Christ has preceded us. He has gone before us. Now, he has then two wills, a human and divine will, and two natural operations of those wills. And they cooperate, the church tells us, in such a way that the Word made flesh willed humanly what he had decided with the Father and the Holy Spirit for our salvation from all eternity. He simply carried out the will of his Father, his own will, because he is one with the Father. His human will submits them to his divine and almighty will. Everything is preordained. Everything is predecided. 
When Jesus, for example, says that he does not know the day or hour of the end of the world, it's not that that is a fault in him. He, the Father, and the Holy Spirit have decided from all eternity what his mission on earth will consist of, and it is that which he fulfills, that exactly. It is in God's wisdom that we are not to know the day or the hour. It was not for the Son to reveal that according to God's wisdom. It wouldn't be good for us to know exactly the day or the hour. So in saying that the day or the hour only the Father knows, he himself with the Father has preordained this for our own good. All that Jesus reveals, all that he does, all that he says, all the miracles he performs, everything is for us, for our good, for our benefit, for our salvation. So that we must say that he expresses humanly because he is a man. God becomes man. Everything that Jesus says and does expresses humanly the divine ways of the Trinity. As the Church explains, the Son of God communicates to his humanity his own personal mode of existence. He is not Father. He is not Spirit. He is Son. He is Son, and he reveals himself as Son. So that all of Jesus' life, his deeds, his miracles, his words, everything, everything about him, reveals the whole fullness of deity which dwells in him bodily. His humanity then, we must say, appeared as sacrament, to use the words of the church. His humanity appeared as sacrament. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a sign, but under the new covenant, a sacrament is also an instrument. Through the sign, God's own life is dispensed to us. Under the former testament, all that God revealed as signs were but signs. They were signs, they were shadows, they were temporary things, they were literal and historical. But those signs pointed to the fulfillment in Christ when the reality itself would be made present. So everything about his humanity is a sign and also an instrument of his divinity, of the salvation that Christ brings. We have to remember for a second what God revealed to David about his son Solomon. Now, when David wants to build a house for God, God in so many words says to him, you can't build a house. You are not going to build the house. Now, in part what he is saying is that David can't build a house befitting God. That house is the body that God is preparing for himself, a heavenly body. Ultimately, it is his mystical body, the body of Christ, which is his church. This is something David can't do. No human being can do it. Now, God speaking in the language of signs tells David that his son will build him a temple. 
Now, it is fulfilled, that word is fulfilled in a literal and historical way, just as God fulfills his signs in literal and historical ways, in order to make intelligible to us, accessible to us, the mystery he is speaking about, which is actually a very sublime mystery. It's heavenly, it's spiritual. So that Solomon, in a certain sense, fulfills the word of God. He is the son of David. But when he fulfills it, when he builds that temple according to the design God shows him, everything he is doing is a preparation for Christ who will actually definitively fulfill that word. Solomon says to the Lord, you have bidden me to build a temple on your holy mountain. It's true, God had bidden him to build a temple on his holy mountain. But that is the word of God. It is the Son speaking about what the Father has bidden him to do. As if he is saying, you, Father, have sent me to build that temple that you want, that you have willed from all eternity, on your holy mountain. Solomon continues, to build an altar in the city where you pitched your tent. This beautiful mystery that God becomes man, he pitched his tent among us, to use the language of scripture. Now that tent that he pitches among us is his humanity. And so he says to build an altar. That altar, of course, is ultimately the altar of our heart. In the city where you pitched your tent, a copy of the holy tent, Solomon says, which you prepared at the beginning. He's speaking of Adam. He's speaking of the body that he prepares in Abraham, in his people Israel. We can go on and on because God continues to speak about this. It will be fulfilled, of course, when God becomes man and takes flesh through the Virgin Mary. So, this, as the church confessed from her earliest days, this is the mystery of our religion, that God has manifested himself in the flesh. Truly, he is with us in the flesh. This is why St. John, in his first letter, speaking of it, says, you will be able to recognize the Spirit in this way. Anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. This is what the Church says when she speaks of this conviction. It's the mystery of our religion, that God has become man. He has manifested himself in the flesh. What do we say? What do we profess in the creeds? The creeds of the Church have been formed from the earliest days of the Church. They express, they are professions of the doctrines, in summary fashion, the doctrines of our faith. And we commit them to memory for good reason, so that when we hear erroneous teachings, when people start saying things like that Jesus, in his public ministry, was trying to figure out who he was and was trying to figure out what he was supposed to be doing, as if to say he wasn't really God anymore. He was just like the rest of us stumbling around on earth part of the time. No, it's wrong because we profess that he is true God and true man. 
The Apostles' Creed was formed in the first century of the Church, and the Nicene Creed, which we confess every Sunday in the Universal Church, was formed in the early centuries in response to the very kinds of heresies that already are springing up, the kind that St. Paul is having to address in this letter to the Colossians. So that we say in the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the power of the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. This is what we believe. It will not change. It's an unchanging doctrine of our faith. St. John, at the beginning of his eloquent gospel, speaks of how the Word in the beginning was with God, and the Word was God, and how through Him all things were created. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Truly, He dwelt among us. He goes on a verse or two later and says, No one has ever seen God. There is this mystery surrounding the incarnate Word, the mystery that God Himself is, He remains the inexpressible, the ungraspable, the invisible one. He is pure spirit. No one has ever seen God, St. John says. But then he immediately goes on to say, It is God the Son who has revealed him to us. So that we haven't seen God, and yet we have in the person of the Son. And every single thing, if we want to know God, we need to truly, we need to truly understand, ponder constantly every detail of the Gospels. Even those things which seem to be sort of haphazardly thrown in there as small details, we don't really know what their purpose is. Nothing is in Scripture that does not have purpose according to God's design. So, in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness, the fullness of deity, of God, the three persons in one God, dwells bodily. As the Church explains to us, in the body of Jesus, therefore, we see our God made visible. And so, we are caught up in the love of the God we cannot see. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering Mary, Mother of Christ, Mother of the Church. And now, back to Dr. George. Towards the end of chapter 2, St. Paul says something very interesting about how there is one reality that we need to be concerned about. There is one thing that matters, and that is the body of Christ. Now, in light of everything St. Paul says up to this point in time with regard to the person of Christ, we are given to understand many things which otherwise might appear as mysterious to us, 
things that God himself has revealed concerning Mary, and of course, the church, which is the body of Christ. Now, Mary is the masterwork of the mission of the Son and the Spirit in the fullness of time. She is God's masterwork. When God speaks of preparing a body for himself, in Mary we find this being brought to its completion for the sake of Christ in preparation for the revelation of Christ. Mary is created, conceived, immaculately in the womb of her mother. Now, it is not because of any merit on her part. It is simply because God wanted to do this. And we can understand why, because he is preparing a body for himself. He is preparing a body from which the Word incarnate will take his humanity. That body would have to be perfect. It would have to be without sin without corruption. Yes, God does this ahead of time. He prepares the body before the incarnation takes place and before Christ's work of redemption is complete. But it's not a problem for God who is outside time, who is Lord of time, to do things in time according to his will and whatever will fulfill his wisdom. Everything God does in salvation history, in a sense, is a preparation for a fulfillment of it down the road. And he does this in an eminent kind of way with regard to Mary. Mary is conceived immaculately in virtue of the merits of the redemption of Christ her Son. She is, at once, at the same time, simultaneously, virgin and mother. And to understand this, the only way we can really understand it, is through the eyes of faith. Through the eyes of faith, we can discover why God wanted his son to be born of a virgin. We can discover why Mary is our mother in the order of grace. So let's take just a minute or two and look at Mary as virgin and mother of the church. She is, of course, a preeminent and wholly unique member of the church. Mary is the first Christian. She is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan in Christ. She is the exemplary and the most perfect realization of the church. In Mary, God is forming his church, his mystical body. Mary is virgin because she is first and foremost immaculately conceived. She is without sin from the beginning. The word virgin has almost more spiritual significance than it does natural significance. We are made virgin brides in baptism. We've spoken of this in past lessons. To be virgin in the eyes of God is to be pure, 
innocent without sin. And Mary is created this way and she remains this way throughout her life and is still so. She is conceived this way, but she is also virgin because she fulfills her mission in God by conceiving Christ as a virgin immaculately. She conceives Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a virginal conception that God becomes man in the womb of Mary. But she is also virgin because of the purity of her faith. As the church says, her unadulterated faith. The faith that is never corrupted, never tainted by sin, by distortion, by resistance to the word of God. Mary is the mother of Christ and as such, the mother of God. People sometimes have little difficulty saying, admitting that Mary is the mother of Christ, but they can't go the next step and say she is the mother of God. Now in this way too, that is to see Christ as too human and not the divine person that he is. According to God's own design, Mary is the mother of Jesus Christ, who is God. She is the Theotokos, to use a Greek word, the God-bearer. She gave birth to God. She is the mother of God. This too, if we understand it through the eyes of faith, we can understand why God would want it to be this way. It is because he is forming a people, a body for himself. Mary, in hearing the word, received it totally, unconditionally. She embraced it. Hearing the word, she gave a complete yes or fiat. She not only embraced it totally and unconditionally, but she lived it. Her whole life was informed by the word she received. Her total concern was doing the will of the Father. So that by her charity, she associates herself, she collaborates with God in bringing about the birth of believers. In this way, she is a type, a sign of the church. She is a vessel of divine life. She is the beginning, as it were, of the church, the church that is formed in Christ, by God, through God, for God. And the church carries on the mystery that God revealed through Mary. After all, what is it that happens through the church keeping the deposit of the faith, the sacred deposit of our faith? She is whole and true to that. She embraces it entirely and purely and will to the end of her day. Having received the word of God, she embraces it and lives it totally. And anytime any of us receive the word of God this way, we become fruitful. This is what happens with Mary. She becomes fruitful by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church bears the fruits of the Spirit. 
Through preaching and baptism, the church brings forth sons of God. Sons conceived not by flesh or the will of man, but sons conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of God. So the church is carrying on this profound work, the mystery of which Mary already is a sign. In Mary, then, the church says the Holy Spirit manifests the Son of the Father. This is what the church will do to the end of time, that in everything she lives, everything she does, she wills to make manifest the Son of the Father. That is why the church has read concerning the burning bush in the book of Exodus, that Mary is the burning bush of the definitive theophany. A burning bush which on one hand is so temporal seeming, frail, of this earthly order, and yet, even though it is consumed by the life of God, the love of God, it is not consumed or destroyed, it's not annihilated. It's beautiful. She is that burning bush, as the church now is that burning bush, filled with the Holy Spirit. She, Mary, makes visible the Word in the humility of His flesh. And the Church continues this. Now, if we understand the shadows and figures of the Old Testament, if we understand what the Judaizers in the time of the first century were saying with regard to the Sabbaths and the new moons, the feasts that had to be kept, the fasting, the abstaining from certain foods that they considered worldly foods, and the people of God should not eat. All of these things, St. Paul alludes to them in this letter, and he says, all of these, in light of Christ, are but shadows. He says, there is only one thing, one reality that matters, and it is the body of Christ. We need to understand the mystery that Christ fulfilled in his person, and now that mystery is present in the church. If we understand this, we would understand that what matters now is only our life in that mystical body. No one enters heaven except through in the mystical body of Christ. When Christ is with his disciples, he speaks of, he associates them with his own life. And not only his life, but his mission, his work, his sufferings, his death. But he speaks of a still more intimate communion. A communion which is mysterious and very real. He is alluding, of course, to the mystery of the Eucharist. When he tells his disciples he will not leave them orphans, but he will remain with us truly in his humanity, not only in spirit. Now, there are many who live in the Spirit of God, but who are not Eucharistic. They do not have communion with the flesh of Christ in his body, blood, soul, and divinity. When the Church speaks of this, she says that, in a sense, the communion of which Christ was speaking is, in a way, a more intense kind of communion then the communion we so often think of in more physical or visual ways. We all think it would be nice to be able to see the person of Christ in his humanity, to talk with him, to touch him. And yet, 
there is a more intense kind of communion, intense because it is mystical. Things which are mystical are mystery, but mystery which is also spiritual. And the spiritual things are the most real things, the everlasting things. So that by communicating his spirit himself, by leaving himself with us, Christ mystically constitutes us as his body. When we look at the whole of our life and we say that we would like to attain to holiness, we would like to live fully the life of grace, or even if we speak in more natural terms, that we want complete peace, complete happiness, the church tells us truly, it's truly so, that it is in the church that we most fully fulfill our purpose in God and for Christians our vocation as Christians. St. Augustine, in speaking of this, the church fathers understood that they understood this mystery of how we are living members of Christ's body so that we truly are united with our head. It is the head and the body which constitutes one. We are one. And so Augustine says, we have not only become Christians, we are Christ. He says, we, because we are head and body, we live in him, we truly are him. We are Christ, he repeats. And in the resurrection of the body, when we see ourselves, when we see each other, we will look upon the people of God and say, we will recognize he is Christ, she is Christ. We will see our form in some way as Christ. It is profound. This is why St. Paul says, this is the reality that counts, the body of Christ. We need to get that. Even as Christians sometimes, we tend to see it in, in vague, abstract terms. This is the most real existence on the face of the earth, to be living members of the body of Christ. From the church, we receive them in this mystical body, the word of God. It's from the church that we know the truth. From the church, we are shown the life. From the church, we receive the way. It is from the church that we receive the sacraments. The sacraments give us new life, sustain us along the way, heal us, strengthen us, and prepare us to pass over from this life into the next life. We have this in the church and only in the church. From the church, we learn the example of holiness, of which Mary is our model. Mary, of course, is a creature. She understands that better than anyone. She is not our Savior, but she is the chosen vessel of salvation, just as the Church is God's chosen vessel and instrument of salvation. This is why at the very end of this first half of the letter, St. Paul says, in conclusion, let your thoughts then be on the things above, the spiritual things, the heavenly things, the mystical things, is what he is saying, not on the things that are of earth. Because you have died, and now the life that you are living is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is revealed, and he is your life, he says, you too 
will be revealed with him in glory. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4 and the letter to Philemon, which include the following two topics, a life freed from the slavery of sin, and second, created free by God, set free by Christ. Knowing the Scripture's Bible study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scripture's program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.